This hour we're going to be talking about Proverbs for Life. Wisdom literature is a foundation for personal growth. I am a strong proponent of, when we talk about biblical counseling, I think I'm a strong proponent that it needs to be biblical. So that's an important word. Uh, It's, right, we're not just giving advice. Uh, When we look at the Bible... It is on. Is that better? Can you hear better? Okay. Perfect. Thank you, sir. You were in the right spot at the right time. Uh, so when we look at the Bible and we, and we ask the question, uh, how are we supposed to approach the text? I think right, there's one meaning per text. So as a biblical counselor, we need to know what that meaning is because the Bible is what changes people. So when we communicate, we have to communicate with the words of God. I love the, there's a lot of passages that I think of when I consider this, but I really love 1 Peter 4 that it says, if anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. Right, so God gives us the ability to speak. He gives us the energy to speak. He gives us the opportunities. So when we do, we need to speak as if we're speaking for the Lord. Of course, Second Corinthians 5 says that we're ambassadors of Christ. And an ambassador never speaks from his own agenda. A faithful ambassador never speaks from his own agenda. A faithful ambassador represents the king or whomever it is, the state, the country that he is there for same thing with us as ambassadors of jesus christ we have a message and a ministry of reconciliation but that message and ministry is only as good as what we are close to the bible when you think about job in chapter 42 job and god talk for several verses then you get around verse 7 i think and job god says to uh, the three friends, he says, I'm angry at you, right? My, ra- my wrath is aroused against you. And he said, the reason it is, is because you've not spoken what is true. So they gave advice to their friend, but they didn't give God's advice, right? They used words, but they didn't use God's words. So I think then for biblical counselors, one of the key elements of the way that we do counseling is to speak God's word. And the way we do that, and just and this is just extra on the top here, uh, we recognize there's one meaning per text. So as the counselor, I need to know that meaning. Right? Because if I can know that meaning, that gives me God's word. And then once I know the meaning of the text, then I'm looking for the significance. Now, the significance of any text is different depending on the person it is that you're talking to or yourself as you read. Right? Not every passage is significant for every person all the time. Right? There's some you understand its meaning, but when you consider your situation and or the person's situation, it's just not a text that fits the situation. There are others you think, oh, there could be multiple ways that this passage fits. And that's when we begin to talk about significance. But we never share significance until after we've shared meaning. 
Because if we're not careful, our counselee walks away with significance as meaning. Does, does that make sense? We don't want to make that error. I don't want... Right, I grew up in the 70s when the church, and I'm using broad sense church, uh, especially the fundamental church, was responding to the craziness of the 60s. And so you had preachers preaching against long hair and hippies and tattoos and music, rock music. And and the way they preach that, it's as if all of those things were addressed in the Bible, like almost verses that were associated with all of those things. So then when my generation hit the 80s and we actually started looking at the Bible for ourselves, then you would say, well, wait a minute, I've heard a decade worth of sermons and I don't see where any of those actually come out of the Bible. Right? There may be good reasons not to have, not to be, uh, whatever you would say, not to be a 1969 hippie. There might be good reasons not to do that. But let's not call it Bible reasons and or call it from the Bible. I said last night, I think I said in here, we don't want to call sin what the Bible doesn't call sin. But that doesn't make everything wise. Right? So we can talk through wisdom, but what is wisdom? Wisdom is at the level of significance. So when I counsel, I counsel, I begin with meaning. And then we transition to significance. And as we get to significance, at that point, now I... I often would use and think through significance with questions. If this passage means X, then what would you say? Wonder, wonder how it applies to your situation. What would you say to that question of how does it apply? Well, I want them to start thinking about it. They're going to be much more convinced it applies if they discover it rather than me just tell them this is the way it applies. So their application, though, may be quite different than mine. And my application may seem perfect in my mind, but it may not connect at all with this counselee. And at that point, we have to know that now we're talking significance. So if they don't do it just the way I suggest they do it, doesn't make it a sin. Just means they didn't listen to what I had to say. As long as they're not, does that make sense? It's one thing to break a Bible command. It's another thing not to do what your counselee suggests counselors suggest you ought to do right so the bible says let's think through a specific example the bible says to love your wife the way christ loves the church that's the command so what is the significance i may say to a man well you know what it's it seems to when i listen to your wife it seems to me that she's frustrated that every day you leave your dirty socks where she doesn't want them now, I think if you're going to love, the, love your wife like Christ loves the church, in my mind, I think if we applied that to this situation, to me, it seems like you would move those socks and put them where she wants you to put them. Now, that's my application of the Bible truth. That's what I'm suggesting to him is significant about it. Now, if he doesn't do that, that doesn't make it a sin. Now, in my mind... It sure feels like a sin if she's been clear and you're just not doing it. But he might say, no, I love my wife like Christ loves the church and I'm just 
I think the socks go there. <laughs> right? That doesn't mean he's sinning necessarily. Do you see the difference? Right? So significance is more of a conversation where meaning is more teaching. Right? So we, what does the Bible say? Meaning. Now, how does it apply? Significance. We counsel, right? In the weeds, we're usually talking wisdom, not Bible command. It's based on Bible commands, but as we flesh it out, we're thinking wisdom. So, so back to what I was saying as an introduction. I believe it is critically important of the primary books that you use for counseling to know those books well. I don't think you need to know every book of the Bible to be a great biblical counselor. It'd be good to be learning them. But I think you could know probably six or eight or ten. And pretty much, Pallison said you could just know the book of Ephesians and you would have enough to be able to counsel anybody. Probably we could expand that a bit, but there's key ones in the New Testament, Ephesians, James, um, 1 Peter. There's some key Gospels, Hebrews. There's some some critical texts. Not that the rest aren't important. I'm just saying that when people come to me, those tend to, we tend to go there often. Um, In the Old Testament, I think... There's a lot we can say out of Genesis, especially the first half of Genesis. And then you get to your wisdom literature, right? So Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Those five are fantastic. Lamentation is good. And there are other key texts, Isaiah and Jeremiah. But you don't have to know every book of the Bible. Be learning, right? The lifelong learning. But learn a few books well. When I say well... I try to know a book in my mind where I could say, well, I try to learn it by paragraph. So I use the English Bible, whatever English Bible I have, I try to, if it's consistent with what the, if it's consistent with the grammar, but most of them are very well. So if I use the English Bible I have and I try to think through it, okay, this paragraph goes is first, second, third, fourth, right? So the book of Ephesians, it's basically 15 paragraphs. And I can walk you through those paragraphs, right? I don't need to do that for you, but I can connect them. I know the storyline and there's multiple books of the Bible that I've done that with. Right now I'm working on the book of John. When you start to do that, you're going to find connections that you've never, that you've missed before. And they're just beautiful. They're, it's fun to do. What that does then is it allows you, when you counsel out of that book, it allows you to connect the things that are necessary, but to stay clear inside the meaning of the text itself. I often tell my students, if you don't know the verse before and the verse after, the one you're getting ready to share with the counselee, probably don't share it. Because you're not sure you're in context. Right? There are too many questions you should have if you don't know the verses around it. So that's why I say just go with one book at a time. Learn it well, then go the next one. Learn it well, go the next one. Learn it well, and you'll find you have plenty of material uh, to counsel. I know, I don't know if the bookstore here sells them, but they have uh, Bible verses for counselors, for men and women, and all kinds of stuff. I wish I had thought of that series, actually. That's a uh, 
For as many situations as you have, you can make a new book. It's a great deal. Uh, reality is, that's fine, I guess, if you have no clue what you're talking about. But, but you need to double check all their work. You don't have any idea if it's in context or not. Or if it fits your counselee. So all that's just some spare introduction here. Because we're talking about Proverbs. Now, uh, Proverbs is part of the wisdom literature. And so we'll begin there. And I haven't even prayed, I don't think. Let me pray for us. Lord, we love you. Thank you for your kindness uh, to us. Uh, thank you for your love. Um, thank you for your word. What a great blessing. And I just pray that it would enlighten us even this hour as we think about the book of Proverbs and some give some some exegesis as well as uh, some broader stuff related to the book. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so the goal I have, I want to talk to you a little bit about wisdom literature. I want to give you three major introductory passages at the front of Proverbs. I think they apply to many, many, many counselees. And then I'll give you a broad sense of some category stuff through the rest of the Proverbs. So I just really, it's just to help you learn the book of Proverbs better. So when we talk about wisdom literature, it is important because we learn from the Old Testament. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 13 is the story of Israel. And it says two different times in that passage, these things were written for your example so that you will not fall to the same lust that they fell to. So, right, it's given to us so that we can learn. And so I think the Old Testament, we don't want to miss some of these key passages. Proverbs itself was written by Solomon to give insight and discretion into the various pressures of living life for God's glory. We see that in the first nine verses of the book. As does other wisdom literature, this book provides clear choices for the reader. Here are the key parts. There are Two paths of life, the way of the wise and the way of the fool. Now, the way of the wise, that way is someone who loves the Lord and wants to honor him. Really, you could say it this way. It's someone who is God conscious, right? Wisdom, ultimately, wisdom itself, right? When we say, when James says to pray for wisdom, wisdom isn't necessarily the content of the Bible, Right, so we're not, when you say, God, please give me wisdom, you're not asking God to give you content. You're asking God to strengthen your skills at applying the content to the life lived, right? To the path that's in front of you. Right, so wisdom is a skill. Wisdom is a, a gift that God provides, and he can provide more of it to us. But it's taking the Bible and it's applying it to the life right in front of us. That's why in James 3, the James can say, who is wise among you, right? Who is skilled at doing that? And then he compares wisdom of the world versus wisdom of the wise in verses 13 to 18. So it's the way of the wise. That's the person who takes the Bible and can apply it to life. And I'm going to suggest a wise person is simply God conscious. And I'm using, to make that, I'm using both the meaning of the fear of the Lord and what Ephesians 5 says when it says to uh, walk in the Spirit. And the person who walks in the Spirit <laughs> is the person who walks circumspectly, 
who is wise and who understands the way of the Lord. Right? I'm thinking of Ephesians 5, uh, verses 15 through 21. So that's the way of the wise. Now, who is the fool? Well, the fool, of course, it's described in about five key passages or five key words in the book of Proverbs. Uh, help us understand the fool. But I think probably the verse that helps us most is uh, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Right. The fool is the one who doesn't have a God consciousness. It's the one who ignores God. And so there are two paths of life. That's what Solomon is pointing out. One is the way of the wise, meaning you live with God in mind. The other one is the way of the fool, meaning you live as if God doesn't exist. So you're not applying that kind of wisdom. Uh, one more note before we move on. Isn't it interesting that Proverbs is written by the wisest person who ever lived, but the wisest person who ever lived had some significant spiritual struggles. Solomon died not worshiping in the temple that he built, but worshiping in the temple of other gods. It's a... It's a sad, his, the end of his life is a sad part, especially when you know he wrote these incredible books through the power of the Spirit. Notice in the next statement, a proverb then is a short saying, often containing a simile or a metaphor, where the meaning produces a clear picture in the mind of the reader where wisdom is practically expressed to be used in daily life. So it's a pithy short statement often. It makes the book of Proverbs very hard to outline. You'll see that at the end here when I give you some of the broad pieces of it because it's all over the place. And so they're excellent though to memorize and to use. Often use them with their children to understand them. I think well my parents forced us to memorize lots of Proverbs. There are some chapters in Proverbs that I still remember most of the chapter from memorizing it as a child. Um, probably one of my favorite is, uh, I think they had us memorize the King James, but it was, Wherewithal shall young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to your word. With my whole heart have I sought thee. Let me not wander from my commandments. And it goes on from there. That's uh, uh, some good stuff. Actually, I think that's Psalm 119. In Proverbs, my apologies. I did memorize it. In Proverbs, it's my son, if sinners entice thee. That's the one I was thinking of. I started quoting Psalm 119, but I was, if, my, if sinners entice thee, consent thou not. And then we went through that whole passage. Uh, so in Proverbs 1 through 9, it contains appeals for a son to listen to the dad's instruction. Solomon highlights the necessity of transferring truth from one generation to the next with tender love. Right? Think about a father teaching a son. Right? It's like a granddad sitting on a porch on a rocker and a son's either at his knee or in his lap and he's talking to that kind of son. That's the idea, that's the word picture in my mind at least that I get when I think about this particular text. You say, well, where does he say that? In one eight, he says, my son, hear the instruction. In one ten, my son, if sinners entice thee. In two one, my son, if you receive my words. Three one, my son, do not forget my law. 
4.1 Hear, my children, the instruction of a father, and give attention to no understanding. In 4.10 Hear, my son, and receive my sayings. In 4.20 My son, give attention. Right? We could go on. Uh, in almost every part of verse, chapters 1 through 9, we have this refrain that we hear over and over and over. My son, my son, my son. It's the hope of sharing wisdom. The hope of sharing Bible principles to increase the ability to apply the Bible to life for the benefit of the one listening. And so we're wanting to do that with our counselees. We're wanting to do that with our family members. So Solomon shares with his son Rehoboam what he learned at the feet of his dad, David. The challenge for us is how does this apply to us today as well? All right, I told you we're going to look at three major passages and then we'll just give you a broad sense of the rest of the text. Here's the first major passage and that's the foundation of wisdom in Proverbs 1.7 and the foundation of wisdom is the fear of God. 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. Again, that's the actual the verse that we started with when we were children. Right, so the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. That's where we want to start. But the fool despises it. So what does fear of God mean? It means reverential awe. Right? Reverential awe. You're amazed. At the power and the majesty of God. You sit almost with your mouth open as you observe him and see all that he is and all he, all he is and all he does. Listen to what Jerry Bridges says. He says, a profound sense of awe toward God is undoubtedly the dominant element in the attitude or set of emotions that the Bible calls the fear of God. It is... Actually, let's move down to the next one because I'm going to put these together. For the Christian, the fear of God is paramount. It's critical if someone is a Christian. John Murray says this, the fear of God in which godliness consists is the fear which constrains adoration and love. It's the fear which consists in awe, reverence, honor, and worship. And all of these on the highest level of exercise. So all of them at once, all together. It's the reflex. I love this line. It's the reflex in our consciousness of the transcendent majesty and holiness of God. What a powerful way to describe the fear of God. I think often of a tornado. A tornado, and in Missouri we get them often. They come out of that state, Oklahoma, uh, usually. Um, They come out of Oklahoma, come into the lower half, the southwestern corner of Missouri, and Joplin has been hit uh, significantly so. Joplin, you know, if you're not having to travel roads, Joplin's not too far from 
Branson and where we live in Christian County and Ozark. And so those tornadoes come and we have them off and on uh, throughout the year. We're, we're fairly used to them. A friend of mine and I uh, were at the lake and there, it was a cloudy day, but not really a stormy day. We weren't doing, we weren't thinking about tornadoes for sure. And uh, we were fishing. We we were actually facing the west. We were in a bend of the lake that was almost a 90 degree turn, and we were fishing against a rock bluff. And so, as we're coming down this bank, uh, we're both sitting there fishing, and we feel a cool breeze. Right? It's you know how when a front comes, you, all of a sudden you feel wind, the temperature changes. We pick, we feel that, and both of us instinctually just kind of looked behind us, and the clouds certainly looked like, wow, those are ominous clouds. We've not been paying attention. They were to our west, and we're facing east, uh, doing our own thing. And as we're both observing this cloud, a tornado comes right out of the cloud. And it comes straight across the lake to where we are. And we're both sitting there and observing it. And before long, right within just a little while, probably a hundred yards or so away from us, it kind of goes back up into the cloud again and keeps going. And we both, neither one of us said a word. Right? We're just speechless. Then we agreed... Let's not tell our wives about this. So, uh, <clears throat> His wife died. I'm not sure she ever knew. I was telling this story. Uh, one time I was teaching about the fear of God somewhere. I was telling this story and I realized my wife was in the crowd. Uh, yeah, she's like, so what story were you telling? Yeah, so. But it's, there's something majestic about a tornado. Right? You're in fear of it because you realize it has so much power. But at the same time, there's something beautiful that in God in weather can create such an event. Right? It does speak to, to speak to something bigger. The difference between fearing a tornado and the fear of God is that a tornado only does destruction. And God, even though he's so capable, all of that is under his holiness, love, kindness, mercy, right? He is a good God that we can trust. But it has this sense of fear. And he says, the fear of God, that's the beginning of knowledge. Now, what is the opposite of the fear of God? The opposite of the fear of God is the fear of man. The opposite of the fear of God is the fear of man. In Proverbs 29:25 it reads the fear of man brings a snare but whosoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. Right trusting God and having the fear of God are very similar to each other. Those are complementary truths. But the fear of man brings a snare. Typical to your sin nature is that there's no fear of God. You'll recognize some of these passages. Right? In Romans 3, 18, 
in this particular portion, it says there is no fear of God before their eyes. It's talking about the eyes of an unbeliever. Of course, this is in the text where it's talking about there's none righteous, no, not one. It's describing the sinner. And those are quotations, that particular verse, there's no fear before their eyes, that's a quotation of Psalm 36, verse 1, where it says the exact same thing. So that's typical to an unbeliever. Remember in Genesis chapter 20, in verses 10 and 11, this is one of the times when Abraham brings Sarah, he's right there traveling, they get to Abimelech's place. He's the king of Gerar. And he says to tell Sarah, hey, tell Abimelech, I'm, you're my sister. And Sarah must be quite the beautiful lady because everybody they met kind of liked her. And so Abimelech says, well, I'll take her. And sure enough, she goes off with him. And God sovereignly, providentially made it where he didn't do anything to Sarah. And then that night, God said to him, hey, what are you doing? This is another man's wife. And Abimelech comes, to, comes back to Abraham and says, why did you do this to me? And Abraham's answer was, because I did not think you had any fear of God. And isn't that ironic? I would say, arguably, it didn't seem like Abraham had much fear of God. But as an unbelieving person, that's the way he described his unbelief. In Exodus chapters 5 and 9, when it describes Pharaoh, it says that he had no fear of God. So, in this first text, and again, I want you, Psalm of Proverbs 1 verse 7 is a critical text that we're going to probably teach to a lot of counselees. And it's important. The fear of God, that's the beginning of true knowledge. right? That's where everything, the foundation of life is the fear of God. And the fear of God is the opposite of that of a fool. And it's the, opposite, it's the foundational component, arguably, of those that are followers of Jesus. Because those that do not follow Jesus, it says that they have no fear of God. In chapter 2, then, we learn that wisdom is valuable for developing the fear of God. In these five verses, we won't spend as much time on those. It just says, my son, if you receive my words and treasure my commands within you so that you incline your ear to wisdom and apply your heart to understanding. Yes, that will go. We'll stop. Pause there for a minute before we go to three to five. Notice here the son's position toward God's word. Look at these great words, great descriptive words. He says what? If you receive my words, right? When you receive something, it means someone's giving it to you, right? As people give us gifts, we receive those gifts. So it's an, you, right? It, when you think of receiving, you have your hands out and you're receiving something. And you treasure my commands, Right, so you think of, so what do I do? I treasure this. He says you treasure it within you. Right, it's in your heart. So you receive, you treasure. Then he says you incline your ear. Now my oldest 22-year-old son, he and I, when he first learned to hunt, 
we were both sharing the same stand to deer hunt. And we had a buck come down the path and and so we both noticed the buck and I said, okay, let's go ahead and see if you can shoot him. And it's his first deer, first buck, and he was excited about it. And I was slow to put my hand over my right ear, but I did thankfully get my hand over my left ear and he pulled the trigger and the gun was just above my head. Uh, and I've hardly heard anything out of my right ear ever since. That's been probably five or six years ago. So in a big crowd, when everybody's talking, I don't hear anything, right? It's just noise. There's so much noise in the right ear, it just drowns out what's going on in the good ear. And so when I talk to people, I have to, I've, I have to incline my ear. My wife is convinced I need a hearing aid. I've told her I don't think that's wise. A, a young person does not need a hearing aid. And I am... Stress young, right? So a young person does not need a hearing aid. So we have this ongoing conversation, or she does. I just usually turn my right ear toward her. Uh, so that. <laughs> so I think she says something about hearing aids. But the point is, I have to incline my ear often. I have to pay attention. That when it says incline your ear, that means you're you're straining to hear, right? I turn my left ear toward people so I can hear it better. And then he says, apply your heart to understanding. Essentially, in verse 2, you would say, incline your ear to wisdom. That would be hearing the word. Apply your heart to understanding. That would be significance. Right? That's, both of those would be in verse 2 there. In verses 3 through 5, notice the benefit of searching for wisdom. The benefit is, yes, if you cry out for discernment and lift up your voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver and search for her as hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord. Ah, if I seek after wisdom and discernment and understanding, which means what? I've, I learn the word and I learn to apply the word. When the process, I'm doing that, and I'm doing it as if I'm searching for hidden treasures. What does it do? It opens up the fear of the Lord. And you'll find the knowledge of God. Right? So that's a critical component. Right? We want to teach our counselees. These are beautiful word pictures. Right? Counselees understand treasure. They love getting stuff. Right? It's, it's, these are words that people can understand. And so search for it. Love it. Long for it. So the foundation of wisdom. That's the fear of God. Let's go to the second big principle. The wise son is to live by the ethical and religious standards of wise people. Right? There are standards. We're supposed to live God's way. Right? We don't make it up on our own. If we're going to be wise, we need to live consistent with what God wants us to do. These instructions, specifically in this text, verses 1 through 12, vary in length and are in pairs. So that makes this a really fun passage to help somebody learn. Each pair urges the learner to act or refrain from acting in a particular way. There's also a motivation attached to each one of them. 
which states the consequence, or we could say which states the rewards that living wisely or foolishly will bring. So this is one of those passages that you can take a counsel e to to just say, hey, let's look at how this works. The foundation for your life needs to be the word of God, which is going to give you the fear of God. It's going to help you with the fear of God. And as you live that way, let's just see how this plays out. How should it work? What are the benefits? What's the motivation? The instructions warn, they give advice, they correct where necessary. They do not seek to develop the learner intellectually, but rather aim to teach practical obedience to biblical wisdom. So what does this look like? Well, I think there, in verses 1 through 12, there are two sections. Verses 1 through 4 is the appeal to follow the Father's teaching. In chapter 3, 1, it's, here's the instruction. The instruction is to remember, and the motive is you will have a good life. My son, do not forget my law. That means remember. But let your heart keep my commands. Isn't it fascinating that when it says do not forget, the opposite of that isn't simply remember, but what? Obey. When I don't forget something, I'm obedient to it. And then why is that beneficial? What's the motivation or the consequence? Well, length of days and long life and peace, it'll add to you. Now, I teach a class in the seminary. And this is for incoming freshmen. Now, what we've noticed at Baptist Bible College and Theological Seminary, that when you're dealing with 18-year-olds, we've watched this for years. Our school is about 70 years old. And I've been teaching there since 1999. And if you were to chart from 99 to 2022, the Bible knowledge inventory, it's a test that every freshman takes when they arrive on campus. We give it to them their first week of school. We give it to them the, about a week or two before they graduate their fourth year. Right. So when you track the Bible knowledge test, back in 1999, college students that were entering college, they were probably in about the 60 to 70% range. Right. So it's a very general test. You, didn't have, you don't have to know a lot of Bible but what we found, our freshman students showing up at 18 years old right now, the average test for this last year's was in the high 20s. Now, that's coming out of Christian. Those are kids coming out of Christian homes, coming out of churches, just like ours. But they just don't know the Bible. So our faculty uh, determined this year to add a class for all freshmen called uh, what's the Gospel of John. Because if we have Bible knowledge tests around 22, we're not even convinced that a lot of those kids are coming saved. Right? That's at least something that we're interested in. And so, if you're not sure somebody's saved, what better place? And it's a, I teach the class. I'm enjoying it. Uh, and it is... Uh, it's verse by verse. We started on John 1, 1. On probably the last or next to the last day of class, we'll get John 21, and we'll have gone through every verse. Uh, they're critical. The key things that they do during the semester are really 
very simple. Um, the final exam, they've had to memorize 10 key texts. Some of them are multiple verses. The final exam is to take four of the 10 they've memorized and write, the signif- write out the verses and write out the significance in relationship to what John says. I've written these things so that you might believe. But the whole goal of the class is to make sure that they are followers of the Lord. So on day one, the reason I'm telling you that story, on day one of this class, I took them to Proverbs because I asked them this question. I said, if you're 18 and you're coming into this class, my guess is you've got at least two or three questions. But these are the three questions I will answer for you so that you understand. The first question is, why are you in this class? Why should you learn the Gospel of John? Second question, why are you my teacher? Why should I learn it from you? So I put that in context. The third question is, how do we know that what you're saying is actually consistent with what the Bible teaches? How do we know that this is true? Right? That What's the process? So in the third question, I basically explained the process of hermeneutics, how I was coming at truth. Second question, I talked about I'm the person on campus that takes the Bible and applies it to daily living. So I want, so I'm the one teaching it so that they can have the Bible applied to life. First question, we were in Proverbs, <laughs> specifically four, but it's part of what we learn here in three, where I just simply said to them, if you will learn the Bible, the Bible promises you'll have health and life. And at 18, right, I'm thinking in my mind, why would they want to sit through this class? The Bible gives us motivations to learn the Bible and learn wisdom. One of them is so that I can have life and health. Now, I'm Pollyannish. I wish everybody in my church loved to learn the Bible and live the Bible just because they love God and people. But it isn't that easy. That's why all over the Bible, God gives motivations. If you do this, these are the blessings. If you don't do this, these are the consequences. Why? We need those things. And so for these 18-year-olds, I said, if you will listen, what does this text promise? Life and health. Why? Because I wanted them to buy in. I wanted them to say, oh, this will be good for me. You can use the same way with counselees. We are going to the Bible. We are learning the Bible. Why? The reason we are is so that you will learn. As you learn wisdom, it will bring you life and health. Right, This is going to benefit you. That's verses 1 and 2. What about verses 3 and 4? Make obedience to God your lifestyle. Let not mercy and truth forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So make obedience to God your lifestyle and nature. And in verse 4, what? And you will find favor and high esteem in the sight of God and man. So again, there's a motive, there's a consequence for doing that. So verses 1 through 4 is listen to the Father's teaching. Verses 5 through 12 then would be primary instruction. I'll just work through these quickly. You know verse 5, many of you do. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your path. He'll make your path smooth. Verse 5, trust in the Lord. Verse 6, God will make your path smooth. The next pair, verses 7 and 8. 
the instruction is fear the Lord and depart from evil. And specifically, don't admire your own wisdom. And what happens when you don't admire your own wisdom? You will enjoy better health than a refreshed inner man. It will benefit you if you listen to God's wisdom and not your own. Right? That's the way to say it to a counselee. Some of our counselees need to hear that. Verses 9 and 10. Honor the Lord with your offerings. The motive or consequence, God will supply everything you need. Now, why is that important? Because... It's always a temptation to not be generous, to not trust God, to not put God's priorities first. And in the process, we learn when we do to trust him and watch him in his generosity. Verses 11 and 12, appreciate the Lord's discipline. Do not despise the chastening of the Lord. And the motive or consequence, you will be encouraged by the Father's love. As the Lord loves those he corrects, just as the Father, the Son, in whom he delights. So what's the big idea under number two? The big idea is the wise son is to live according to God's standards. So the first one, the foundation, fear of God. The second one, we have to live consistent with God's foundations. Here's the third one. This is what I call the framework for personal growth and discipleship. The framework for personal growth and discipleship. Verses 20 to 27 of chapter 4. It's one of my favorite passages in Proverbs. Verses 20 to 22. Passionately follow wisdom and enjoy its benefits. Notice there's two things here. Verse 20 says, My son, give attention to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Do not let them depart from your eyes. Keep them in the midst of your heart. Again, those there's four components here. Give attention. Incline your ear. Don't let it out of your sight. Keep it in your heart. Treasure it. Right. So it's very similar to what we've already heard. Why? Verse 22 tells us, For they are life to those who find them and health to all their flesh. Right? So that's just like we read in chapter 3. Here again we get that same reward. There is a benefit of keeping God's word and following it. And so we, so the framework, the first part of the framework, as you'll see in a minute, is God's word. Here's the second component. The heart must be guarded. Verse 23, it says, The heart must be guarded above all guarding. Keep your heart with all diligence. A great translation of verse 23 is to guard your heart above all guarding. Why? Because out of the heart is the wellspring of life. What does Jesus say? He says, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Right. So it's from the heart that all the rest of life springs forth. So what does he say? Do guard it. I don't really like the translation here. A lot of translations use this word. It says, mine says, keep your heart with all diligence. I don't don't like that translation for this reason. Because it's not just simply be diligent. The Hebrew says, guard it above all guarding. Right? So I grew up in Kentucky. We, Fort Knox is guarded. 
Right? When you have a personal possession, you guard it. What he's saying is whatever that most is that you've ever experienced, guard your heart more than that. Right? Take it one more step further. Above all guarding, guard your heart. Why? Because out of it flows all of your life. It's the critical component. How about verses 24 to 27? The heart has directional control of your behavior or conduct. So, a guarded heart, it's going to spring forth all kinds of life and issues. And here are a few of them. In verse 24, the mouth and lips shun twisted words. So, there's a mouth issue, a word issue. In verse 25, there's an eye issue. They're to stay fixed on the right teaching. So your mouth, your eyes. Verse 26, your feet are to... Oh, what's going on here? I don't see the the PowerPoint isn't right. So the feet are to stay in the right path. That's what you're looking for. It's just not on the PowerPoint. And in verse 27, make your choice to stay on the right path. Do not turn to it from the right or the left. Remove your foot from evil. I think Proverbs 1, 7, we started there. And this Proverbs 4, 20 to 27, those are probably my two most used Proverbs. Um, Just to tell you about my own practice, that's typical. So what then, how do we understand this framework? Well, there's a few things to understand about it. First, the foundation is to remain faithful in the word. That's the foundation. Remain faithful in the word. Some key notes about that. The priority is giving attention. To what do you give attention to in an average day? How do you, these are just questions you have on your notes there. How do you incline your ear? Where do you look? What do you remember? Remember, remember means obedience. What do you rehearse? What do you say to yourself regularly? Are there benefits you are missing because the word of God is not functioning as the foundation of your life? Those are some key questions. Foundation. What's the second part of the framework? It's your inner man. Keep or guard your heart above all guarding. It's your inner man. Why? Because your heart's the wellspring of life. Everything comes from it. Remember what Jesus says in Luke 6. In that text, it relates to Jesus and the heart, right? It's the treasure. Everything flows out of the heart. Here he says, A good man out of good treasure of his heart brings forth good, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. It's the Luke component to the Matthew verse I mentioned. Your attitude, emotions, and behavior flow out of the desires that war for control in your heart. That's why the heart's so important, because everything else is going to sneak out of it. What you want, long for, and or love determines how you respond to your circumstances. What we were talking about last night when we were discussing that 
LGBT issues. Here's number three. Your outer man is the third component. So the foundation's the Word of God. Your inner man, you have to keep and guard it. Your outer man, you examine your daily lifestyle. That's the, the framework for wisdom. Solomon refers to what? Lips, eyes, and feet as they relate to your behavior. Remember the children's song. Oh, be careful, little mouth, what you say. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful, little feet, where you go. Why? Because that represents our hearts, right? It flows out of our hearts. So just simple questions here. What comes out of your mouth? Where do you look? Where do you go or what do you do? And do you stay on the middle way of faith or do you turn to the right or to the left? Related to what we've talked about this week, you could say that this text, this talk could have been the first talk. And then as we talked about social internet and as we talked about LGBTQ issues, they both really what are are, uh, application talks of what we're saying is foundational in this framework for wisdom. The framework for wisdom is you must have the foundation is the word of God, which produces the fear of God. And then you have to guard your inner man. And have to apply it at the outer man. That's the framework for wisdom. When we think about it, So what am I counseling? I want to make sure they have the foundation of the word of God. I want to make sure that we're applying it at the heart level. And then connecting it to behavior. Does that make sense? That's the framework for how we share wisdom with the counselee. And it's here in Proverbs. Especially Proverbs 4 is very helpful. Word of God. Apply it at the heart level. Make sure that's connected to the behavior level. Well, then the Bible, Proverbs, gives us a lot of other guidance. And that's what I was telling you. It's kind of hard to outline. We were in chapters 1 through 9 for just my talk, my first part of the talk here. In Proverbs 10 through 31, it deals with all kinds of stuff. So let me just give you 10 of those categories. The first one is it gives us wisdom in communication. And the Proverbs are all listed there for you, right? Those are key Proverbs you can learn. If you have a counselee that you think, oh, there's some communication issues here. Well, here's some you can turn to, right? This is a quick help, quick guide. But before you use it, what do you have to do? Know your verses before and after it, exactly. So he told us not to do this, then he gave us one of those lists. Somebody else copyrighted it first. Wisdom and purity. Right? Well, what a powerful topic. Well, if you're talking to someone who's struggling with desiring adultery, they possibly are just doing some unwise practices and you want to warn them about adultery, I think there are some great verses here that help warn them. Especially for purity. I think it's good to have guys. I love to... to have guys work through Proverbs 5, 6, and 7. Right? Those are good texts. Wisdom with alcohol. Right? The Bible doesn't call drinking a sin, but it sure says there's a lot about alcohol that's unwise. And so we want to just know what the Bible says about it. We don't want to say what's more than what's true, but we don't want to minimize what is there. 
Right? So we want to be clear. How about with anger? Isn't that fascinating? Right? Just look at the number of verses. I wonder if anger is a universal problem. Right? There's a lot of verses here about anger. And I bet people like money and struggle with money because there's a lot of verses about wealth. Most of these are very apparent. Right? So like in this one, the first one is Proverbs 10, verse 4. I've tried to keep them all in order from 10 to 31 as you look through all these categories. In 10.4, it says, He who has a slack hand becomes poor, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Right? That's just a good proverb. Right? It's fun to help people think through those. How about with pride? Another good list. For all those other people. Right? That may have to think about pride. When pride comes, then comes shame. But with the humble is wisdom. It's a good word. Uh, wisdom with truth and integrity. Does not wisdom cry out and understanding lift up her voice? Wisdom with women. This would be to the son. And for ladies, several of these are for just specifically ladies as it relates to women. Like a Proverbs eleven twenty two says, as a ring of gold is in a swine's mouth, snout, so is a lovely woman who lacks discretion. <laughs> it's kind of a hard truth, isn't it? I'll let you read the rest of them. Wisdom with health. That's a good one. The Bible doesn't give a perfect weight. It hardly says anything really on what health. It doesn't define health. Right? You can't get a Bible's definition of healthy. But it does give good Bible principles for the way that we can live. And then the final one, wisdom with happiness. So that will get you started. Proverbs. It's about the fear of the Lord. It sets a standard for living. And gives us a framework for how to work through stuff. Lord, we pray that you'd give us wisdom as we seek to know your word and to live it well. And may we live with the fear of the Lord before our face. For the glory of God, in Jesus' name, amen.